Uh, well, again, welcome, guys. Uh, my name is Isaias. It is really difficult to say, as you probably saw this morning. Tom Patton is my friend, and he still can't say it. So <laughs> anything from Isis to Isaias, I've gotten it all. And so uh, you've, you've come to the clown show. No, I, I'm excited to be with you guys. Again, I'll say it one more time in case there's two or three more of you. This isn't on genealogies, all right? I don't know that. That's Andrew Curry. He knows that. Um, our, our topic today is centered around work. And so originally, Austin Duncan was going to do a class for us. Uh, and where we're going to be this morning, open your, your copy of God's Word to Colossians 3. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 24, and I've titled this sermon, uh, Know Who You Work For and Work Like You Know It. Know who you work for and work like you know it. Let me begin by reading God's word for us. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Anxiety builds, tensions boil. You just think of Monday. Not this week, because this Monday you have it off. And if you don't, your anxiety is definitely built, and tension is definitely boiled. Uh, but I do think that when we think about work, we, we do have a tension that builds up inside of us. And there's something that's understandable about that, but as Christians, we do want to orient our minds and our hearts to think rightly about work, and to think about it in such a way that would please and honor the God of work, the God who has always worked. If we wanted to go to the very beginning of our Bible, the first thing that we would see about God is that he works. In the beginning, before time and before space and before matter, in the beginning, God created. He was at work. And it wasn't burdensome. It was something he enjoyed to do. It's something he he's designed us to be the very same way. And yet even as believers, I think we struggle with this tension of our existence as it comes to us and work. How should we live that out? In fact, I think that very often we find that this tension is one in which we are seeking satisfaction from work because it's something that we know we have to do, but it's so hard to find that satisfaction and that joy in our work. And it isn't just us who struggle with this. Uh, So do big-time intellectuals and scholars and academics and philosophers, people at Harvard. Harvard Business Review, why you should stop trying to be happy at work. And all God's people said, amen. Why you should stop trying to be happy at work. Even in the world, we've come to a place where we understand that happiness isn't going to come from the things that... And so what does Harvard have to say about how we should think of work and the happiness that might come or might not come from it? Here's how they would put it. And here's what they found. So much is written about happiness at work, yet judging from Gallup statistics that show 85% of employees aren't engaged with their work, few know how to attain it. 
And I want us to understand that when we think about engagement with work, what we're thinking about is people who feel involved with their work, enthusiastic about their work, and even committed to their workplace. That's a staggering number. 85% of employees are not engaged with their work worldwide. That means 8.5, if we want to split someone in half, out of 10 people in this room fit that category. And that's a dangerous place to be, especially because all of us in here, or at least most of us in here, aim to know and love and serve Christ. It ought not to be that we are struggling in the same ways that the world is struggling. Now, those things will be real, but we should know how to fight that. We should know how to escape that. We should know how to work through that. It shouldn't be that we are stuck in the same rut as the rest of the world when it comes to our work. And so in order to get past this hump of how do we do our work in a way that is enjoyable, how do we live lives that are fruitful in terms of how we work, how do we live lives that are honoring to God and our employer, how are, how are we to live in ways that would please the Lord in the ways that we conduct ourselves in the workplace, we have to think about it in a way that God has prescribed for us. And that's what we have before in Colossians chapter 3. There is often this big disconnect between us and our work. But, but Paul writes here in the book of Colossians, after declaring the supremacy and lordship of Jesus, after making Jesus the most preeminent of all beings, of the most preeminent of all people, after Jesus is declared to be Lord, he gives us this set of commands to remind us how it is that we should live and function and even work as those who claim his lordship. If you claim that Jesus is Lord of your life, your work will look different because of it. If Jesus has truly redeemed you, and if Jesus is your true and heavenly master, then your work will look different because of it. And what we'll find in Colossians 3, verses 22 to 24, is that those who know who they work for, work like they know it. Those who know who they work for, work like they know it. Or let me put it this way. When you see your work, as an opportunity and a gift that God has given you, a stewardship that God has given you to serve him and to honor him and to reflect the glory that he and he alone possesses, then and only then will your work be enjoyable. It is as Solomon's problem was in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, what gain is there in our labor? And if you were to turn there, you would see he doesn't answer the question because there isn't meant to be gain in our labor. What labor is meant to do is to be a gift enjoyed. And you will only enjoy that gift if you see God as the supreme and preeminent ruler of all things and the father who bestows good and perfect gifts to all his children. That's what work is. It is a gift an opportunity to be an image bearer. And in so doing, when we know the one who has given us the work that we get to do, we will work 
in a way that honors him. I want to see that this morning in three key ways. Number one, we want to look at the command that Paul gives us here, the command. Heed to your master. Number two, we'll look at the call, which is to honor your Lord. And number three, we'll see the compensation. And we love that word, which is a heavenly. The command to heed your master, the call to honor your Lord, and three, the compensation, heavenly inheritance. We'll begin here in verse 22. Again, we're reminded that this set of commands that we're looking at here in verse 22, they spring forth from an understanding of the supremacy and lordship of Jesus. Because Jesus is who he said he was, and because Jesus did what we know he did, because Jesus is Redeemer, Lord, and Savior, how ought we to live? Paul prescribes that for us here. He looks at the household. He says, wives, this is how you should live with your husbands. Husbands, how you should live with your wives. Children, how you should live with your parents. Fathers, how you should live with your children. And now he turns to a different focus. And we would understand how this has some family connotations in this time. It was a different era, a different time in which servants, slaves were a part of the family economy. So it isn't too far off for him to talk about wives and husbands and children and slaves in the same sentence. That was the economy of the time. And before we go any further, I do want to pit stop here to say that that's okay because of what we're going to highlight next. That, yes, Paul here doesn't give a a diatribe of how to rid the society of slavery. He doesn't give a treatise on the wrong uh, implications of slavery. But what he gives instead are, if this is the station in which you're in, this is how you should live. That has actually transformed the world to be what it is today. It is, in fact, Christians who have taken these very principles and uprooted slavery from being what it was. And so Paul's primary focus, his primary concern is not to abolish slavery. It's to help those slaves to understand how it is that they can live in a way in this time that would honor Christ. And before we get bottled up on that, whether or not we should abolish it or not, we should understand that if God can transform people living in the worst of society, he can then absolutely transform us who have it far better. We, we can make some similarities here between bond servant and master and employee and employer. But we recognize we have it far better. And if God could transform them, he can transform us. If he could give theirs and the life and a new heart to live in a way, even as slaves, even as bond servants, in a way that would please and honor Christ, how much more us? This has very practical applications for us. And so, bond servants, what is it that a life in Christ, a life that ascends to the lordship of Jesus, what would it look like? Obey in everything. Obey in everything. 
If they wanted to turn slavery on its head, they would need to obey in everything. But what's more, if they were to honor Christ, they were to obey in everything. Obey in everything those who are earthly masters. This is the principle that Paul gives to these people on how it is that they are to honor their masters. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obedience is the only proper relationship. And Paul recognizes that not because it's what everyone else is doing, but because that's what happens when Jesus lives in you. You understand your place and you live like it. And you do so unto the glory and honor of God. We see elsewhere here, this doesn't come with any uh, qualifications. It doesn't come with an addendum. It doesn't come with a bet if this. Uh, later on, actually, we even see Peter write about the same things. And he says this in 1 Peter two eighteen: Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer it for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Friends, they had it far worse than we do. And so if we're going to fast forward here to where we are today, each and every one of us here has a boss. Each and every one of us here has someone that we answer to. We have someone that we report to. The question is, do we give ourselves to obeying in everything in this way without qualification? Yeah, you just don't know my boss, though. That guy's a big-time jerk. You don't know the criticism, and I get every single day that I show up. What's more, you don't get the lack of appreciation that I never get for all the things that I do at my job. I'm severely underpaid. And all God's people say, <laughs> no, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to get there. By the end of this, we're going to pass the test together. But that is how we think, right? We'll obey insofar as it works for me. I'll do my job insofar as it pays enough. I'm treated well enough. I'm recognized enough. And that's not how Paul thinks about it. The first step toward being a worker who honors God is to heed this command to heed to your earthly master. Obey in everything. It's obvious that the principle here would not lend you to do anything that would go contrary to God's word, right? We see that in Acts chapter 4 and says, hey, you can't be doing that. And he says, well, I still got to honor God. And so we understand that. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. But if you have to run the Excel spreadsheet again, you're going to have to run it again. If you have to bind that wound again, you're going to have to bind it again. If you're asked to double check that report that you ran for two weeks, you're going to have to do it again. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Notice how he gives us instructions on how it is that we should do that. Next, he says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This is someone who not only looks to obey and not only looks to do the job, the authority is present. He doesn't look to just simply get the job done when someone's watching. He does the job done because he knows what his job is. He's been delegated with a responsibility, and it doesn't take any ounce of micromanaging to get it done. He's not doing it when people are watching. Paul creates two words here, literally makes two words up to prove his point, to make his point. We are to obey in everything, not by way of eye service. In other ways, in other words, not when someone's watching, not just when someone's peering over your shoulder. Recently, there's a ton of videos that keep, people keep sending me because I am millennial, so I do watch those little short videos that are supposed to make you laugh, but you have to explain to your grandmother. I watch them all the time. And, and the ones that keep hitting me now, it's like the, the guy sitting behind the desk and the boss is coming around. And so he's rigorously just like doing crazy stuff. And then, they, and then they pan in on his desktop and it's an empty Excel sheet and he's just clicking back and forth on different things. And it looks like he's busy, but he's not. He's trying to give the impression that he's up to something productive and profitable, but he's not. And Paul takes it a step further. Don't just be profitable and productive when someone's watching. Do your job without anyone having to tell you to. People who have to wait for someone else to step in to get the job done only care about themselves or what they're going to get out of it. That's what Paul is saying here. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. If the only motivation for you to work is that someone has to watch You're not doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it to please your boss or to get him off your back or to please yourself. We aren't to work in this way. A heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus that ascends to his lordship no longer works in that way. What's the positive side of it? If we're not to work by way of eye service or as people pleasers, We ought to do so with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This word sincerity, it comes from, the root for it is wholeness. It is that every ounce of you is dedicated to getting the job done. It is that when you have received a task or a responsibility, You give yourself to it with your whole, you you give all that you have. You you don't just put your back into it because you put your heart into it. No one's got to force you to do your job because you want to do your job. You take this command seriously. Why? Because secondly, you recognize the call is to honor your Lord. Those who work from the heart do so because they've been given a new one. Those who work from the heart do so because they've been given a new one. That is Paul's message for us here. You can't heed this command unless your heart is open to it. And your heart will only be open to it if you fear him. Or as it says in verse 23, you work heartily 
as for the Lord for men. Is your work, the things that you do, the responsibilities that you have, the tasks that you've been given, do you see them as only a means unto your own satisfaction and gratification? Do you see them as simply a means unto a paycheck and livelihood and well-being? Or do you see that as a service being rendered unto God, a God who works, a God who has fashioned us and made us to work, and thereby a God who has wired us to work so that in our work we would worship him? Those who have seen the beauty and glory of Jesus, they understand that they have been called to this in a manner that would honor the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Heed to the command... Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. A hard worker is a God honorer. Someone who gives it their all and the things that they've been doing bring glory and honor to God. If you claim Christ and you go to work disgruntled and begrudging of the things that you need to do, all you've done is that day, not only is it you've had a bad attitude at work, but you have borne name and reproach upon the name of the God who called you to do that work. He has called us to the work that we have to do. And so this is good news for us because then our work It transcends positions or titles or opportunities that you've been given. It doesn't matter what your email signature says your title is. It doesn't matter if you've made it on an executive team or if you're mopping floors or cleaning closets. It just matters that what God has given you to do, you do it in light of him. Whatever it is that God has placed before you as your station, you can do it with God in view. And you can honor him because the God who has given you work takes pleasure in you doing it with all of your heart. Work is worship unto the Lord. And for those who assent to know Jesus and love Jesus, work then becomes natural because it is born in us supernaturally. We don't have to fight to get a Christian to work. It shouldn't take a lot of prodding to poke a Christian to do their job. It shouldn't take a lot of effort to get a Christian out of bed in the morning to get them to work on time. But but I'm afraid that, unfortunately, we fall into the same traps that the world does all the time. And we don't give ourselves to working heartily in this way. I know this because I've been doing research for days now trying to find data. And I did find some. In the workplace right now, 89% of people say that at least for 30 minutes a day, they waste their time on the job. At least 30 minutes. 31% say at least for one hour. That's worldwide. Now, in America, 
The average person spends 2.9 hours of their workday doing non-work activities. The average person. Praise God if you're below average, but if you're above average, my goodness. I love the way this is phrased. 64% admit to non-work-related searches during work hours. That's only 64% that admit. We all know it's 100%. I got to figure out how to smoke this brisket tonight. I got to figure out if the Lakers are actually going to win again sometime. Amen. Just kidding. I trust the process. 64% admitted it. Less than 60% is spent on work. And when we come to work, look at this, top 10 distractions during our work hours. Surfing the net, 47% said that's true for them. Social media, 45% say that's true for them. Texting, 44%. Bathroom breaks, which is, you know, playing Wordle, 39%. (laughs) Socializing, 27%. Snack breaks, praise God for snack breaks, but 25%. Coffee, which is another snack, 19%. Reading and drawing, I don't know who these people are, but that's 16%. (laughs) And check it out, household activities, 14%. I don't fall into that, but, you know, the Rona did it. We're working from home now. We find limitless ways to distract ourselves from doing work, and all that means is that we're not working hard. These numbers are astronomical. And we fall into it. I think that we need to go back and take a lesson from a lesser creature. Proverbs 6, right? Verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Just watch an ant for a minute and what will you see? It's racing the whole time. Never seen an ant stop until my one-year-old goes and tries to poke it. But other than that, It's nonstop movement. Proverbs 6, verse 7. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Nobody has to convince an ant to work. And the truth is, nobody should convince a Christian either. Take the lesson and be wise. No one has to position an ant and tell it where to go. It'll find it. Oh, my boss didn't give me enough instructions. That's fine. Find it. Be an ant. You don't know where it is? All right, I'll go find it. There's a piece of stick over here. I'm going to go get that one. You don't know what the job is? Figure it out. Have the conversations, but be diligent. Be ant-like. For some of you, be ant-man, but be diligent. Give yourself to your task. Work heartily, just like this lowly creature. No one wakes it up in the morning and says, hey, we got to get going. I know it's Monday, but here's some I know you got to watch the kids again, babe, but be back later. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Ants get up and they go. And when we experience newness of life in Christ, 
I hope we're less like our old self and more like an ant. God uses some of the simplest and most humorous ways to wake us up, right? And to get us where we need to be. Be like this ant. Work heartily. At what? Well, Paul gives us a good indication here. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. We're the ones that make such a big deal about the stuff we've got to do. Paul flips it on his head, says, whatever you do, work heartily. It it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what's on your job description. If you're there, God has placed you there. That's where God wants you. And you do. It's about being an image bearer there of God's glory and being so different from everyone else who's distracted, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to do those things. You give it your all. And in that, so prove that whatever you do, you work heartily because you're serving the Lord and not men. Friends, is this how we think about our responsibilities and our work? Do we think of it as a ministry by which we demonstrate the lordship and supremacy of Christ? Listen, all a hard worker does is prove that Jesus is Lord. Like, I know that you want to be big time, and so do I, and we struggle with these things, so we want the promotion, we want the better pay, we want a better position, we want to have a say, we want to be in the meetings. But listen, if you're at your job and your life, is that not sufficient? Is that not enough? This is the call that we would work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, that we would give it our all, that we would do whatever is in front of us, that we would work at it from our hearts as for the Lord and not for men. Give it everything you have. Because the one that's called you out of darkness and into light is the same one that's called you to do those things. He wants you to do so in light of his glory and supremacy. Well, then, if the command is to heed our earthly masters, by way of secondly, heeding the call of our heavenly master, do we get anything out of it? That's typically what we work for. In God's economy, it's just so different. But let's look at it, the compensation, heavenly inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. And everything we do, we work at it heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ Those who work for God are well compensated. Those who work unto the Lord have a great inheritance. The gift of work reminds us of the gift of grace. Get to do with eyes of faith and with a sight and a vision set on the glory of Jesus, everything we get to do, it takes on a different perspective, doesn't it? Because now it isn't just about a livelihood. It isn't just about my well-being. It isn't just about the paycheck. It isn't just about having something to do. It's about honoring him. 
And it's about remembering that without him, I would have been lost. And without him, I would actually have nothing. That without him, I could gain the whole world and I could still lose my soul. So what does Paul tell us? Know that when you give it all in your work, regardless of what happens here, you so prove that Jesus is Lord. And when you so prove that Jesus is Lord, one day he will repay you in full, not because of of his grace. One day from the Lord, we will receive an inheritance. What is that and what does it look like? 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5 tells us this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Notice that really quick. Those who are born again live a life. If you have experienced the goodness of the gospel in saving and redeeming you, you now have to walk in light of that gospel. Work hard. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What does that mean for us? It means that when we work as unto the Lord, the paycheck that comes this week and is gone by next week, that pat on the back that you so wanted and next week doesn't satisfy you, that promotion that you've been wanting all your life and finally got and now you want a new one, those things that are temporal and fleeting and fade faster than than mist or smoke, those things aren't the reason you do it. You do it because God has promised you something infinitely better in his son. He's promised you an inheritance, one that isn't perishable. It doesn't have a shelf life. You don't look at God's rewards. You don't look at God's gift of an inheritance and read Best Buy 0724. It's not like that bottle of ketchup that you left in your fridge for the last six years. It's not like that. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. Nothing can taint it. Nothing can ruin it. Nothing can affect it. It's unfading. It will never lose its value. And what's more, it's kept in heaven for you. You didn't earn it and you can't keep it. God has to do that work. Would you not then just live your life for him? Would you not give it all now so that one day you would receive what he has promised to those who love him? You can do it. And I know that you can do it because of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when you believed in Christ as Lord and Savior, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
this idea of the Holy Spirit being the guarantee of our inheritance. It, it means this. It means that the Holy Spirit is a down payment. You know what a down payment is. You're not buying a house now, but if you did two years ago, you understand what a down payment is. I bought this house. How do you know you bought this house? Because I put $6 billion down for it. There's $17 billion. That's how I know. If you buy a car, you do the same thing. How do I know I bought this car? Well, I put money down. I put a deposit down. I put something in my name, and I gave something of value that says that is mine. Your inheritance is guaranteed because Jesus hasn't just put some low-level deposit down on your life. He gave you everything he's got to offer, his son and now his spirit. His spirit lives in you, dwells in you, works in you so that you can be guaranteed. You can know in full that one day what God has promised will be yours. The spirit isn't dormant. The spirit isn't sleepy. The spirit doesn't want to sit there active. The spirit works. The Spirit does what God has promised, what Jesus has promised in John 4, 14, that the water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It isn't stagnant water. That's disgusting. It doesn't do anything but make people want to clench their nose and get out of there. It's running water. It's a spring of water. It's got a lot of activity. It's doing something. And so if the Spirit that guarantee and deposit of heaven in your life now that lets you know that one day you will receive in full not what you deserve, but what Jesus has given you as a gift. If that spirit lives in you now and is at work in you now, what should you be doing? You should be working. You should give it everything. That spirit works in you so that you can work out what it's doing inside of you. Paul put it a lot better than I just did right there. Philippians chapter 2. And this brings us full circle here. Therefore, my beloved, this is verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, not just as I, ple- I, I service or people pleasers, but as those who understand that with sincerity of heart, we are to fear the Lord. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live life the way that saved people should. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You should be the hardest worker your company's ever seen. You should be the most diligent worker that that the business has ever seen or known. Why? Because you are powered and moved and changed by God. A God who works. 
and a God who works so much that not only has he created all things, but he has started a new creation through his people to be a beacon of light and hope to the world of what God can do in them. One way in which you do that is by giving yourself to abilities before you, the work before you, the job that God has placed before you, and giving it everything that you have. Not because it has something in it for you simply, not because there's a promotion down the line, not because one day you'll be on a news headline, not because people are going to love you, not because you want your boss to be impressed, not because you want your wife or your husband to be impressed, but because God, who always sees all things, wants to be pleased. And he wants to be pleased by someone who's empowered by the Spirit to work to his good pleasure. I think D.L. Moody sums it up simply for us in this way. And I think it fits very well for us now. He wrote these words in light of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Who should we send? Isaiah, me, Lord. Here I am, send me. Etched in his Bible right next to these words, D.L. Moody writes, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. What I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. That's the call that we have on our lives. It is to reflect on the glory of Jesus and think of work not as position or status, but as privilege and gift. And that whatever station we find ourselves in, we would give all of our might to our work because it pleases God and it honors his glory. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. Word is truth. Thank you that in it we find satisfaction and delight for our souls. Thank you that satisfaction and joy does not come from the things that we do, but it comes from you. And when we are satisfied in you, we are prepared and ready to give our all in the things that we do. Thank you, God, for how you work in the gospel. Thank you that through Jesus, you do not only promise us a future hope, but you promise us present sanctification present opportunities by which we get to work out the salvation that's been worked into us. Thank you that because of King Jesus, we can give our all to everything that you put before us. It is irrelevant what it is that we do, but it's fully relevant that we do it as unto the and not to men. Lord, would you strip us of our own pride, our own desire toward wealth or notoriety, and would you instead work in us the humility of Christ, one that would work mightily unto the glory of God and the good of others. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, friends, as is a custom in the student ministries department, I've let you out a little early. Um, <laughs> if you have any questions, I'm happy to, I'll stick around, and I'd love to chat with some of you, get to know you. So, Thank you so much. Isa y us. Hasta luego. <laughs>